What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just when you thought you had two weeks to recover, it's once again time to suppress your gag reflex because we're back. So very wrong about games. A fantastic podcast about board gaming. So this week, we're going to change it up like we always do every week. We're going to talk about games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, the feature game this week, which is Sentinels of the Multiverse, and the topic this week is Explaining Rules. How do you explain board game rules to your group, how you introduce new games to people, how it should be done, and how it can be done poorly. So Mark, how are you doing this week? I'm doing very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. Yeah, we might want to introduce ourselves. My name's Michael Walker, the hype machine, and this is my good friend Mark. Yeah, that's us. That's us. We're going to talk about board games now. So last week I played Aeon's End. I made a... a passing remark, can't even remember where, and sure enough, the Aeon's End diehards crawled out of the woodwork for my head on a spike. It wasn't even some of my snarky remarks about, you know, Twilight Imperium or Terraforming Mars, but just some comment that I didn't think Aeon's End was particularly engaging, and so like, no, 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 you must have been doing it wrong, or you're just generally wrong about everything, which I normally expect, but anyway. So despite my better judgment, I decided to track down another copy of Aeon's End, and we put it through its paces. So now I've played Aeon's End a total of four times, and I can say that my opinions after the fourth game were very much the same as my opinions after the first. And that is to say that Aeon's End is a co-op deck builder that is not particularly interesting as a co-op and not particularly interesting as a deck builder, and generally anywhere where it differs from a sort of standard trite formula of deck building or co-ops in general. It doesn't really do much with it. So it's got this whole don't shuffle your deck thing, which they made a whole lot of hay about. And sure, if you hate shuffling decks, that's fine. But 
it giveth with one hand and it taketh away with another. So yeah, you don't shuffle your main deck when what that effectively means is you can try to build combos so that your hand is always the same. In other words, that sort of reactive capability of having to decide what to do with your, your hand as it comes out randomly, that's gone. So if you play the game super properly, your deck will just play itself on autopilot over and over and over again. And you always have this temptation to do an incredibly boring and unsatisfying thing, which is to say, okay, I need to divide my deck up into chunks of five, and I need to try to make sure that everything is ordered in just the perfect way. And if you don't, you feel like you're playing suboptimally. At least I don't. Anyway, a lot of the cards don't even make it, take advantage of this, to be frank. There are a couple that combo off each other or combo off other things in, in, in very direct ways. But generally, I thought that the card design didn't really serve to, to, to emphasize that aspect of the gameplay. Another aspect of the gameplay, which I think is incredibly painful, is that there's a random turn order structure. Basically, broadly speaking, what happens is every round, the party will get four activations, more on that in a second, and the boss will get two activations. But this is entirely in random order. So is it possible for the boss to get four activations in a row with no response? Absolutely. Does it happen? Not often, but two happens relatively often. Three happens now and then, and it's really obnoxious, and it also reintroduces obnoxious round shuffling maintenance stuff in, in, into the game. You and I both enjoy Shadow Rift, but we don't enjoy it for the deck maintenance aspects. But there is a fair amount of deck maintenance to be done in a game of Aeon's End anyway, so they, they didn't even really streamline that as much as they could have. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that Aeon's End is fine, but if you have a co-op deck builder that works for you, I prefer Shadow Rift, I prefer Xeno Shift, I prefer lots of the other co-op uh, beat-down-a-boss type games, whether it's Street Masters, whether it's Sentinels of the Multiverse that we're talking about here. It just doesn't seem to do much that I find engaging. What, what did you think? I was going to say, it's funny you brought up Shadow Rift. I was going to do this whole thing, but I'll just modify it to this. There was Dominion came out in 2008, and then we had Xeno Shift came out in 2015. And now we have this Eon's End that comes out in 2017. And it is, they're both co-op deck builders, and I played them both this week. Just this week is one of my games is Xenoshift. And the main thing about deck building games is that you're buying cards, and you're changing your deck, and you're trying to modify it in a way that is fun and interesting and does a lot of damage. And Xenoshift, again, it's older, totally turns it up and gives you a hook, right? You don't need to buy more money like you do in Dominion. You get uh, extra money free. Your money upgrades itself automatically. When you buy cards, instead of them going into your discard pile and waiting for them to come up, you get them right into your hand and you get to use them right away. In Eon's End, we're going right back to Dominion again. You have to buy more money cards. They're, they're slogging in your deck. They don't do anything. You Cards you buy, they go into your discard pile. They really don't change anything whatsoever. And one thing that I really think deserves emphasis in Xenoshift, and it's a very minor thing, but it really, I think, emphasizes the co-op aspect of it, is every card you buy and every card you play goes to whomever you want. And that's just a great way of making sure that it's a genuine co-op. And it's the case that you can really serve to bring up either the newer player or somebody who made early game mistakes or what have you. So they're not a millstone around your neck. And it really does make sure that there's lots of points of contact between different players. Yeah, that's another comparison I have here is you can buy cards for other players, give them to other players. It goes into their deck. In Eon's End, what could we do? You could heal the other person. On that's occasion. the only thing I could remember is that... Uh, there was, sometimes there are spells that give your friend a charge. Sometimes there are spells that let you heal something. I mean, and, and to a certain extent, that's even burying the lead because I think that in addition to the fact that it's less cooperative 
than certainly than Xenoshift and even I think Shadowrift because in Shadowrift there are multiple tasks that need to be performed that are all radically different and it helps to specialize across the players. But Eon's End, one of the things that initially I found very offensive, and I don't find the game offensive, I think the game is kind of okay, but one of the things that struck me as as a, a particularly egregious design fault is there doesn't really seem to have been any effort for player scaling. The number of players in the game makes the game feel radically different and not in a good way because it's a deck builder, and anybody who plays deck builders knows the more turns that a deck gets, the more powerful that deck gets. And as I said at the outset, the party, all the good guys, get four activations every round. So if you have four players... Every round, every round, you get one turn, and the boss gets two. So the boss is moving twice as fast as any individual players. But if you're playing two players, then every turn, everybody gets the same number. Every round, everyone gets the same number of turns. And so you're you're going as fast as the boss in terms of activations. And so you're just a lot more powerful. The only way in which that is quote-unquote compensated for is if there are fewer players, then there are fewer hit points to go around. But not even against the main city. You can lose in one of two ways in Aeon's End. Either the city gets sacked or everyone in the party gets killed. So the only way it's balanced at all is that there's fewer hit points for the party, for that loss condition. The other loss condition, unaffected. The win conditions, unaffected. In point of fact, you're you're just strictly advantageous. So, And this is something that even fans of Aeon's End at, agree on, that four players is way harder than two players. And it's not that I object to games being hard. You and I both like really hard games. I don't like it when a game feels fragile to me. And when a game is radically different in terms of difficulty based purely on the number of players, that strikes me as an element of design fragility that I don't like. Yeah, and in Xenoshift, you can directly affect the boss. Like, as they're attacking you, you are to block the damage that's coming in your base. In Eon's End, when it's the bad guy's turn, you just have to sit back and watch it happen. You're, you know, you're, this takes damage, this is happening, you just sort of, you can't really uh, react to it, and then they could get, like you said, two more turns in a row where you're just sitting there saying, oh, well, I guess this is happening. Nothing I can do about it. In theory, the activation sequence of the bosses is great because their powers have a, a cool, a, not even a cooldown, but a ramp up before they trigger. Something comes out. It doesn't affect you the first round that it comes out. When I first read about that, I thought it would be great. But the problem is you don't know who, if anyone, is going to be going again in the interim. And some of the powers have a cooldown of effectively one round. So it comes out, and you don't know if it's going to go off before you can stop it or not. And so, again, it, it serves to undercut things. There are missed opportunities all over the place, and I just don't think that the ways in which it's quote-unquote unique add to the experience. Let's talk about one part that is good, and we're talking about the gates. And the gates are very interesting. The breaches. The breaches are interesting game mechanism. You start with one breach open, and that's how many spells you can cast, and it's a way for the game to ramp up because you can advance the breaches, which lets you cast a free spell when you advance it, and then eventually you can permanently open that breach, and then you can start casting more and more spells every turn. So it's an interesting way to ramp the game up, but it just seemed like another mechanism built on, much like the turn sequence, much like everything else, when the main focus should have been on the deck building part and it just didn't bring anything new to the table in my opinion i agree with you i like the breaches i think they're cute and then there's the theme it was just the last point i think like the theme in eon's end is yet just more you know the typical fantasy cast spells you know blah blah whereas xeno shift it's it's really like it sort of incorporates you know you're equipping your guys you're going out in the field and just has a more you know, putting you in the situation than it does in Eon's End, in my opinion. Seriously? Yeah. Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna 
uh, say that the theme of Eon's End is is absolutely brilliant. I think it's pretty good. It's not stock generic fantasy. For one thing, uh, the cast is mostly female and they're well represented. It's got a sort of a dark post-apocalyptic siege mentality there for the fantasy, but not in a traditional sort of, you know, vampires and dripping blood everywhere kind of way. Their notion of magic is slightly interesting. I'll give them credit for all that. And honestly, I, I, I like Xenoshift a lot. I like Shadow Rift a lot, but their themes are bog standard, incredibly trope driven, very, 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 very derivative stuff. I don't know. I, just, I feel more into the game in Xenoshift. It's a very, it feels very tower defensey, and I really like that feel for the game. Okay, so make sure that everyone who hears this knows I'm the one defending Anne's End. Walker's the one who hates it. Send all your hate mail to walker at aircanada.ca. Hey, I can, I'll just fall back on the fact that I only played it once. I'm sure on my second play, I'll love it. You just didn't understand it, Walker. Yeah, just, no, no, you played it twice. We played it twice back to back. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. All right. So what I played was Fortress by Stronghold Games. It's a freedom freeze, what he calls a legacy game. And I think it was fantastic. So this is uh, a game in his Fast Forward series. There's uh, three of them, all of them, of course, starting with F, because this is Friedman Freeze we're talking about. Everything has to be alliterative. And this was the one that was most recommended. There's uh, Flea, there is Fortress, and there is Fear. And Fortress is generally the one that got the best reviews, and so I decided to jump in with this one. I had no idea what to expect, personally. I just knew that it got some good recommendations in its approach towards, I wouldn't even say legacy, but just changing the game state from game to game was somewhat novel and very, very, very low barrier to entry and we again the it lasts lasts it evolves over the course of 12 games 12 playings of a game very much like the the pandemic legacy games do and uh we played all 12 back to back right away after every tear down we wanted to go to the next one everyone of the group wanted to see what came up next everyone wanted to see the changes and it kept surprising us Every session, and it's a very short game, we should stress, this is a filler game, pure and simple, 100%. We're talking about 10 to 20 minutes tops per playing. But every game, something new and fun was revealed. This is very, very simple. It's a bluffing game. It's about hand management and bluffing and taking over these fortresses in the table and playing sets to do that, or maybe not playing sets and just playing crap and hoping that nobody calls you on it. And it was just a joy. It was so, it was all the pleasure of discovery in your standard legacy or evolving state games and none of the paperwork, none of the persistent rules hagglings, none of the, oh wait, did we miss a rule card somewhere? How does this work again? It was, it was just a joy to see uh, a game, uh, an excellent game designer play with these ideas in a very, very, very simple way. It was in many ways, to me, the apotheosis of what Euro game design is all about about using simplicity to just evolve a game state. Minimalism at its absolute finest. I had an absolute joy with it. That's Fortress by Stronghold Games. Did I did I say everything you wanted to say again, Walker? You did. You went over all... <sighs> so the other thing we talked about was we compared, not compared it in game-wise, but just in price-wise with same company, Stronghold Games, brought just recently brought out Prelude for Terraforming Mars. And... Both boxes contain just cards. Uh, the The expansion for Terraforming Mars is under 50 cards and is only an expansion, which... And they're poker-sized, right? And they're poker-sized. And we looked through them, it was just more of the same. It was just, you know, mixing up uh, the uh, abilities and stuff that's already in Terraforming Mars, just mixing up and giving you more of the same. Whereas Fortress is an entire game with over 80 cards in it. 
Oversized. Oversized. And they both cost the same amount of money. Same MSRP, yeah. And how can this be justified? In fairness, I will say this again, and once again, take note, I'm defending terraforming Mars and Walker is slamming it unconscionably. Uh, Terraforming Mars Prelude does have that single folded sheet of rules. So that's something. Look, I don't understand why things cost what they do across publisher, within publisher, what have you. I can't begin to speculate, but I can say this. In terms of physical components, I agree with you. There's far more in Fast Forward Fortress. And in terms of design ingenuity, in terms of being able to you know, constantly evolve a formula, I can't comment on what Prelude does. But I can at least tell you that in terms of value for money, Fortress is absolutely uh, among the top tier. Because even after you've played your 12 games... so. Again, Pandemic Legacy says after you play your 12 games, go on and play this set again as much as you like. I don't really know people that do that. Maybe if you do, let us know. But really, most of the time after you you play the the whole 12 scenarios, you put it away. But uh, Fast Forward Fortress, after you play all, all the games, the deck continues to evolve. Now, granted, it doesn't introduce new cards you haven't seen yet, but the mix constantly changes from game to game, and you can still play the filler game. You can even introduce the fully formed after 12 full games of Fortress, to new players. Again, the rules remain very, very, very simple. So I, I can definitely say that it is, a, it is a triumph of value in that sense. I, I mean... I think it could be because uh, Fast Forward Fortress is not number four on the BGG list. No, that, that that's conspiratorial thinking there, Walker. That's... Uh, and also, the, econo- the economics of expansions are weird. I don't know. But yeah, definitely if you put all the components out on the table, Fast Forward Fortress has almost twice as many cards and they are larger and they're both in small boxes so yeah I don't, I don't understand let us know what you think what else did you play this week mark played asgard's chosen this is a weird game from 2013 um put up by morgan dontonville and i believe this is his only published design this is back when mayfair games was still a thing it was starting to be less of a thing even then but it's now not even anything at all but asgard's chosen is a bizarre little game and it is in many ways, and this is this is one of the reasons why I wanted to get it back to the table. I, I, I bring it back every few months because I really do enjoy it. In many ways, it's what Dungeon Alliance was trying to be. Namely, a new spin on deck building applied to a relatively traditional formula and then trying to see what interesting things you could do with cards. But as we commented last time, we don't think that Dungeon Alliance really works. But Asgard Chosen has better hand management, has better deck building more interesting special powers, more clever things to do with your turn, and more trade-offs in that. So it's kind of a, it looks a bit like a conquer the map type of game, but really what, what it is, it's about appeasing these gods. It's It's got a, an Asgardian mythology uh, theme to it, and I think the theme works rather well, certainly better than, say, Champions of Midgard, but less said about that, the better. And you have to appease these gods, and they each have a specific condition on them. And so these are your starting cards. Like every other deck builder under the sun, your starting deck stinks. They're all one-value cards, and later on as you buy new ones, they might have values as high as four, five, or six. And that's obviously preferable for all manner of things. But in order to win the game, you have to appease these god cards, which are the crappy gods you start with, and they each have their own special little Benny that they can give you at the start of the round, which are great, even though the cards remain stinky. 
and they have different ways to satisfy the victory conditions. And so it really is a case very much, again, like Mage Knight, another game we compared Dungeon Alliance to. You look at your hand and you figure, okay, these are the different kinds of victory conditions I can satisfy on my turn. These are the cards I have to do them. And I have to worry about both about fighting, defending myself, and what cards I'm going to purchase at the end of the game. And so you have to kind of make those decisions and then react to what's going on in the board. It's not super forward planning heavy, but it's definitely the case that if you really need to buy something, you can't go all out during the attacking because then your hand's going to be spent. Anyhow, it's got a number of unfortunate component issues. The color matching is pretty terrible in a number of ways. You know, what constitutes yellow on the board is not is definitely not the yellow that's on the cards and the, the colors are supposed to match. And it's got a couple of weird corner rule cases that are very consistent and easily intuitable, but they, they're, they're a little bit diff- difficult to introduce to new players. Anyhow, I'm a big fan of Asgard's Chosen. You can get it on clearance in a number of places, and I certainly think it's worth the cost of admission, even though the components are a little bit janky. It's a very interesting take on deck building, and I absolutely love the way that it uses multi-use cards in the context of a kind of sometimes you're fighting, kind of sometimes you're buying, kind of sometimes you're manipulating special powers. What do you think about Asgard Chosen War? I really like it, too. The most the thing I was going to talk about is the fact that your the decks upgrade. Like, at the first wave of the game, you have all these monsters. They're all, like, level one, and then when you get hit a certain point in the game, then you bring out another deck. It's the same monsters, but now they're more powerful, and the artwork's slightly changed, and they look a lot meaner. And I really like how the game pushes itself forward. It never outlives its welcome, and it ends at the, at the proper time. Yeah, it, it, I will counsel new players if you um, if you get Asgard's Chosen, as I recommend you certainly give it a try. It's also got one of the failings that I identified with Dungeon Alliance. It doesn't have a strong editorial tone. There's a starting game, an introductory game, and a beginner's game, I think, and each of them uses cards in a slightly different way uh, that you can play to various different levels of victory point thresholds. There's a co-op version and a solo version. Here, Here are my sincere recommendations, just as a note. Skip the beginner and introductory versions. Jump right to the part where you need to fulfill six victory conditions to win, and uh, forget about all the deck pruning. The only house rule that I play with, and it is a house rule, is that during the start of the game, you can't grab any of the three strength monsters because they can have an outsized influence during the early turns of the uh, turns of the game. So during setup, you can only get one and uh, one and two monsters. If you play the game, you'll know what I mean. It's the troll. Don't let someone start with a troll. Starting with a troll is bad. <laughs> it leads to bad things in the game, at least in my experience. But yeah, it's oh, and uh, the co-op version is just kind of weak. It's not. I've I've played it a couple times. It's really not to the game's strength. And I think that a little bit more streamlined in terms of here's how you play the game. There is this one way to play the game, or one or two ways would have helped things a little bit. But anyhow, that that's really minor gripings at the outside. I think it's a very, very, very clever game as it advertises itself. And as I've said before, I'm a sucker for Norse mythology. And if you let me do anything that involves tear, I'm there. Nice. That is Asgard's Chosen. That's, I, I don't have any more games, Mark. All my gaming time was eaten up by a certain behemoth of a game. Well, I was fortunate to escape the onslaught of Oblivion for uh, a couple of other things. One was Age of Industry. This is Martin Wallace's sequel to Brass, and Brass is now hitting Kickstarter backers who who pledged for the deluxe version of Brass, which is now Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham. I I like Brass okay. I just think that every way in which Brass is different from Age of Industry, I think Age of Industry is better. Age of Industry is one of my favorite economic games. I haven't been talking about economic games much lately, largely because of the crowd, but I do like me some economic games at, at, at the right time. And Age of Industry is a very uh, accessible and, and streamlined game for a Martin Wallace game. 
The strange corner cases are kept to a minimum. The weird obtuse rules are also kept to a minimum. The market, the way the market changes and shifts over the course of the game, I really like, particularly with respect to coal and iron. And it has a lot of really interesting variant maps. This is one of the key ways in which I think that Age of Industry is indisputably preferable to brass. There are lots of really good variant maps. Two of them were put up by Wallace himself. Four more were put up by fans. And the fan-made ones are really interesting and fun. The Soviet-Russian one I really like. It's got this planned economy that's really cool. It's very much as you would expect from a Wallace economic game. It's relatively dry, on, and on occasion it can be punishing, but it's not nearly as punishing as a lot of his other games. I really like it. I still prefer it to Brass. I think that Brass is just, you know, just obtuse for the sake of being obtuse very often. And the way it's restrictive in terms of loans, I think, is kind of strange. And the economic model is a bit weird. Anyhow, I don't dislike Brass. As I say, I just prefer Age of Industry. And I'm glad that I was able to get it to the table, even in the midst of everyone just getting their copies of Brass and going crazy about it. And that is what we played last week. Nice. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Think that'll show up on the mic? Think people will know we're drinking water? No, I think we I think we hit it well enough. So my first part, I only have two parts of the news. How many th- news things do you have, Mark? Two as well. All right, perfect. So my first news thing is a new pandemic game called Pandemic: Fall of a Franchise. Okay, so it's called Pandemic: Fall of Rome. This was I was going to talk about this too. The co-designer with Matt Leacock is Paolo Mori. We like Paolo Mori. Back off. This is the same guy who did <laughs> the same guy who did Dogs of War and a number of very other uh, a number of other very interesting things. And quite frankly, I'm very enthusiastic to see what can be done with this formula because it's always been so. With the exception of the recent one about flooding, it's always nominally about the spread of disease. But once you hear the idea, it it, it strikes me that yeah, it could be applied to a sort of relatively war game ish very, very light co-op game. You know, invading armies can be modeled with the existing pandemic formula. And so I'm very excited to see where it goes. Why you got to be a hater, man? Because this is Mike Walker's negative episode. That's how how we're rolling today. Oh, okay. Just wait. (laughs) So uh, my own little bit of negativity here is I saw that Horizon Zero Dawn has uh, a board game now. It's being run by Steamforged. Steamforged, which has yet to fully fulfill any Kickstarter project at all, despite the fact that it's got several in the till, it's mostly fulfilled Dark Souls. I didn't like Dark Souls. I thought it was sloppy. It wasn't particularly good. I also want to know, how does a company with a track record like Steamforged, because the, the, the fulfillment was and is a rolling disaster, how do they keep getting large licenses? I'm not familiar with the process of acquiring licenses, but I'd always been told that it was a very time-consuming and difficult prospect where they really had to like you and trust you and they were concerned about their IP. But uh, no, apparently Sony will just give their IP to whomever wanders in. Now, the renders for miniatures look lovely, but they always do. This is Kickstarter. If you can't CAD cam a whole bunch of really pretty minis, then why do you bother in the first place? The gameplay looks unengaging in the extreme, but then again, they showed a very dull scenario, but maybe that's just because they don't have anything better. I don't know. Anyway, it's already, of course, reached its funding. It's going to reach a bazillion stretch goals. It's going to raise a million bucks. One thing that is interesting is they claim that fulfillment is going to happen in 2020. I was going to say, that was my point. I think they've covered themselves by giving them like this super long period of... They'll still blow it. 
Well, <laughs> we'll see. Chinese New Year, man. It's true. That's two Chinese New Years that they can have to, to delay production. It's so true. So my last, my last bit of news is coming up this weekend is our local fantastic convention that we run every year called El Guepo. Why are you telling people about a convention that they're not invited to? Because I want to tell them this just because upcoming up on the Facebook page, there's going to be tons of pictures and next week we'll be talking about tons of new games and I'm something I'm excited about. <laughs> See the part at the beginning where it I'm... says news and why it doesn't matter? Sure. See, that's that's the part. Okay, so this is the news that matters to Walker and to no one else? That's always the news. Okay. Maybe maybe if we keep talking about it like this, we can pretend it's more elite and exclusive than the gathering of friends. There you go. And then we'll sound important. Look, I mean, there are lots of things that I'm excited about that I'm not going to talk about on the podcast. All right. We'll just edit that out then. Well, no. We'll, we'll leave it as a testament to the things that you value at this point in time. <laughs> cool. So that's all the news that we have to talk about, and uh, clearly why I don't think it matters. Let's move on to our feature game, which is going to be Sentinels of the Multiverse, and in particular, the last and most recent expansion, Sentinels of the Multiverse Oblivion, with Oblivion spelled funny, because of course it is. So I'd first like to actually start with a, a personal anecdote about how I discovered Sentinels of the Multiverse. I actually started with the very first printing of the first edition. This is back when all that it was was a square box, some rules and cards and nothing else. No way to track anything. No way to track hit points. No way to track any damage to anybody. You had to keep uh, track either on pencil and paper or whatever other means you had on hand. And I was introduced to it by a guy who ran a short-lived board game store in the West Island of Montreal. I was there when I was uh, visiting family. And he said that it was the, the, the best game of Gen Con 2011. And I looked at it and I hadn't heard of it. And even then, back then, I, I was convinced that anything worth knowing I knew about, because such is the nature of my arrogance. But I decided to support local game stores and all that kind of stuff. Not that it worked. And I picked it up. And honestly, the moment that I read the rules, I was convinced that I'd made a mistake. But halfway through sorting the cards, because they all just came lumped together in these uh, large shrink wrap packages, I was already in love. Because I was deeply skeptical about a fake comics canon. But then, even just looking through the cards, I knew that there was something special here. And... Ever since, I've de been desperately in love with the fake comics canon that is in Sentinels of the Multiverse. Why don't you tell us what goes on in the game, Walker? Well, in Sentinels of the Multiverse, it's like bringing a comic book to life in a card game. It gives you that feel of this epic battle of these heroes working together. You know, they have arch nemesis and they have all their special abilities and their weaknesses. And uh, there's all these in different environments where they fight. And the environments give you the feel that you're there. Like they're throwing pieces of the environment around. Things are crashing and blowing up. And, and the way they run the villains, they all have their unique way to do things. I really think it's a fantastic game. Is it a fantastic game? It's sorry. It's a fantastic experience. Yeah, I. So here's the way I've char I've characterized this before. So Sentinels of the Multiverse, and I say this with all due enthusiasm and affection. I think it's a dumb game. The turn structure makes it clear how dumb it is. Basically, the way that it works is your your opponent your opponent. It's a pure co-op game. That the, the the deck run opponent draws a card and it does whatever it says it does. Everyone then gets to play a card that does whatever it says it does, trigger a card that does whatever it says it does, and then draw a card. And then something else draws a card and does whatever it says it does. And one could be forgiven for thinking that this is basically flux. 
or perhaps even worse. And to a certain extent, sometimes it is as bad as Flux. It is by far the worst game I enjoy. And some of the criticisms that I leveled against Aeon's End were definitely the case in the first edition of Sentinels of the Multiverse. Like, they didn't have any hero balancing in the first edition, the first printing of, of Sentinels of the Multiverse. It didn't matter how many players there were. An effect would have the same effect. And there are definitely cases where it feels less like a co-op and more just about, well, I play whatever card makes the most sense at, at, at the given time. And there are all the standard kinds of problems. And to be frank, when I'm playing the game, I mostly don't care. And sometimes I don't even really know why. I think it's just because of the quirky little sayings that are in each card and the fact that you can see the story sort of happening in the in the illustrations on each card. Like everyone has a nemesis and you see them fighting on the illustrations or they have a team and you can see them, you know, interacting on the cards and they have like the quotes on the bottom that brings it all together. And the fact that there's nothing like that's super, you know, over the top, unbalanced and the fact that it flows quite nicely right like you said it's it's uh play a card do a power draw a card and you're done and it goes around the table and it usually usually does not outstay its welcome so i'm going to agree with you about the way in which the universe is conveyed because it's through flavor text it's through the art which has been varying in quality but always been excellent in terms of uh, clarity and presentation in terms of selling the universe and selling the world. You know, I look back at some of the cards that were involved in the 2012 revised second edition of the game, because I got rid of the first edition when, when they came out with the second edition uh, the year afterwards, which had slightly cleaned up art on many of the cards, and it finally had tokens to track hit points, so you didn't have to deal with any other sort of kludges, although very often you might be inclined to for purposes of usability. And all of that is great. And it does it with a minimum of intrusiveness. You're never stuck reading like story paragraphs to people in order to solve the theme. The theme comes together and there are these characters, these bit characters that sometimes have outsized importance or that show up across different expansions. And you get to get to see all these little background people show up again and again. And to be honest, I prefer the universe of Sentinels of the Multiverse to the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, to be entirely honest. I used to read comics. I don't anymore. Uh, but in terms of how much I like the characters and how much affection I have for them, I, I, I prefer these guys to anything that's in, in the alternative. So now I actually think the fact that it wasn't licensed is an advantage, not a, not a downside, especially given what they've done with the universe. But I'd like to touch on that thing that you said about how it flows well. I'm going to have to disagree with you there. Because when you're playing the base game of Sentinels of the Multiverse, everyone takes their turns, and those tend to be relatively brief. And then you hit these back-to-back -back turns where first the environment goes, and if you've got a queue of a whole bunch of environment cards that have come out, you have to execute them all every round. So if you've got three or four of them, and let's give an example of what a typical card might look like. And I'm embellishing, but not, not by much. It might be something along the lines of, and this is all in a block of all caps text, because it's a comic book, it's got to be all caps, right? But all caps is a little bit harder to read. In a block of all caps text, sometimes with no line breaks, it might say, reduce damage to this target by one. When this interplays, cards of this type leave play. And as they do, they, each, they do each non-environment target two energy damage. At the end of the environment turn, deal the non-environment target with the second highest HP three fire damage. Now, tell me honestly, Walker, somebody who's been playing Sentinels for years, does this sound like an egregiously overcomplicated Sentinels card? Or no. does it sound roughly in line with what you might see on a regular game? That is standard. Yeah. 
And so one of these cards is going to come out every turn for the environment, and you execute them all. And to find out what it does after it enters play, or when it is damaged, or at the end of the turn, or at the beginning of the turn, you have to look through all these lines and reread the entire thing, because they haven't organized things in terms of icons, in terms of schematics, or anything like that. It's all just a block of text. And then, after you do the environment turn, you then get to do the villain turn, and the same thing happens again. Only this time, it's in reference to another block of text that's the villain card that might have other modifiers. It can get really tedious, and it can be a bit of a slog, and during this time, nobody's making any choices. No one's actually playing. You're just running the AI. And in any co-op game, if the AI is tough to run or tedious to run, that's going to be a problem. And I think Sentinels runs headfirst into that more often than it should. It's true. There are some villains that are way more tedious than they should be, and some environments that impede the game, for sure. But I think overall... Most of them work well together. And the fact that there are so many and they still manage to work together, because I know we're going to touch on this later, the fact that there are so many different heroes, so many different environments, and so many different villains that can that are completely randomized every game, yet they still all work together, I think is some sort of bizarre game design, and I don't know how they did it. You're right, that's fair. That is something that I haven't considered. Sometimes, I don't know if the, the fiddliness and the overcomplexity and the difficult-to-parse text or the, just the sheer volume of text, maybe that's the price you have to pay for the fact that there are so many different heroes and so many different villains and so many different environments. And very rarely, although I will, I will touch on this a bit later, very rarely do they interact in extremely unsatisfying ways. Usually what they do is they interact in a way that you then proceed to have to game. It's like, okay, well, we know what this T-Rex on Insula Primaris is going to be chomping on every turn. Let's try to make sure it's not one of us. Stuff like that. And in order to get to those decisions, in order to get to those trade-offs, in order to get to, you know, trying to conspire to get the environment to work the way you want it to or to overcome the villain's hurdles... You do have to overcome, though, a wall of text, which is a bit unfortunate. And if you compare this, remember when we talked about Street Masters, I said Street Masters has a very similar structure in the sense that the villain has a deck, the environment has a deck, and every player has a deck. And even the turn structure is vaguely similar. But Street Masters did a very, very clever thing. Above and beyond the fact that the effects were generally cleaner, they also made it so that the overhead of running the villain wasn't all during a villain turn, but it was parceled out amongst each player's turn. So rather than the villain having a stack of six minions and when it's the villain's turn, we now spend a full few minutes going through each villain, every player would have one villain in front of them. They get to activate that. That was a really clever move, and I wish Sentinels did something similar. Yeah, for sure. That's all I have for Sentinels. Shall we move on? Or do you have anything more that you'd like to, like to add to Sentinels in general? I think a lot of the stuff that I have to say about Sentinels in general will be made uh, more clear in the context when we start talking about Oblivion. All right. So Oblivion is the new expansion for Sentinels of the Multiverse, much in the vein of the new Marvel movies coming out. Thanos, the super or the world eater, or what's the big DC guy called the big... Uh, well, Darkseid the Destroyer is one of them. So, I mean, in comics, you have these big crossover universe-ending events, right? So whether it's Thanos or Galactus or Apocalypse Galactus. or Darkseid, these things tend to happen. And Oblivion is the Sentinels, multi Sentinels of the Multiverse version of this. Yeah, so he's come to town, and now we must amass all the heroes and even the villains, which is an interesting part. Like, the villains finally realize that this is a, a, a bad thing that's happening, and we need to join the good guys. And so they join the good guys, and they come out, and now you can play them as heroes, all to fight this giant supervillain. 
as best exemplified by the arguably the first villain of the game, Baron Blade, who changes sides roughly on the basis of, wait, you can't destroy the universe. That's where I keep all my stuff. <laughs> exactly. And they and once again they've done fantastic art, you know, where you can see them like sort of arguing over the plans on how to, you know, best proceed on how to do things and, and they've the way they incorporated that part I think was very interesting. The way that it's all coming full circle. So this was the last expansion to Sentinels of the Multiverse. They say that Sentinels of the Multiverse is done. And to a large extent, I think they knew that. And so this is a lot of visual references that have been literally seven years in the making coming to fruition. And it's very satisfying as somebody who was there at the beginning and who knows a lot of this stuff. I am by no means, by the way, as knowledgeable in the lore of Sentinels of the Multiverse as a lot of the other people that we play with. They know this stuff backwards and forwards. I haven't put in nearly the same number of hours as a lot of other people. Like I, I, have, I haven't been playing the computer version, for example. But even though I haven't been as steeped in the lore as lots of other people, I'm able to get lots and lots of texture and flavor from a lot of these deep cuts, uh, calling back to cards that, you know, from the first, very first set. And yeah, watching the villains, quote unquote, try to play nice with the heroes is sometimes very, very funny and satisfying. Now, all this being said, we, we're both on the same page that we're both looking forward to the expansion coming out, but... At no time were we looking forward to this big fight. We mostly just wanted the extra stuff. We wanted the new villains, the new heroes, the new environments. But it comes with this giant fight. So we decided that we're going to give this a try. And let's just get into it because I have written here, steamy garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it's way too long. Both of our games, the first one we didn't even finish and we're three and a half hours in. Uh, more than that, it was four and a half. Four and a half. Yeah, four and a half. We finally hours. finished one today, and we were set up, and we knew what was going on, and we had divided everything up to make it super streamlined. I think we went through it fairly quickly. I don't think we really paused very much. We nope. Went through it, and that still took four hours. Yes, we. So okay, first of all, let's not let's not breeze past it. We've only played the final Oblivion fight twice. All right, but we've put in eight hours. More than eight hours on, on, on this sucker. So take that for what it is. Yeah, we hit the ground running. It was fully set up. We're talking about four experienced Sentinels players, right? These are people who've been playing Sentinels a lot. And the second time we had the rules cold. It was the same group that did it the first time. As you say, we divvied up the tasks as best we could and as equitably as we could. We were all moving at a very, very good clip, and it still took four hours. And there are four-hour games that I love. I'm not one of those people that's like, yeah, no game is worth that much time. We talked about Civilization last week. It's one of my favorite games, and, you know, it, it reliably takes four to five hours. But not Sentinels of the Bloody Multiverse, especially since a normal game with experience under our circumstances, those same four people playing a quote-unquote normal game of Sentinels of the Multiverse, you're talking about 45 to 60 minutes, reliably. In and out, setup, teardown included. And all it does is more of the same. There's no real buildup. All you're doing is cycling through, so you're almost spending, not I shouldn't say the most time, but you're spending a lot of time putting your hero back in the box because it died and grabbing yet another one out. This doesn't happen in a normal game of Sentinels Multiverse. You play one hero, and if he dies, then you get some special abilities on the back that you can use to aid your team. In this one, when your heroes die, you still get those abilities, and they sort of, you know, rack up as, you know, you get four or five dead heroes, and you just keep, you know, dishing out new heroes, and you get about one or two turns with this hero, when some heroes take, you know, four or five turns even to get their combos going or whatever they need to get going, but because this Galactus 
oblivion giant thing is doing so much damage, sometimes, you know, you're half dead before you even get a turn to do anything. One of the great things about Sentinels of the Multiverse is how different the characters feel. They all play roughly the same way because, again, it's play a card, draw a card for the most part. But some characters rely very, very heavily on getting the right equipment out. Some characters rely on other things called modules. Uh, a classic example of this is Absolute Zero. Absolute Zero was in the original set of the game. He looks badass. He, he's basically like Iceman, but cool. And a lot of people play him on their first games. And this is what we would call in the gaming industry as a mistake. Because he's a, he takes a long time to get going. And until he's got all his little modules in a, in a row, he's mostly helpless. Because his main power is to cause himself damage. And you might say, well, what's the point of that? Well, at the start of the game, nothing. After he gets a couple of the modules he needs, he can start doing a lot of stuff with, with, with quote-unquote doing himself damage. But, as you say... In a context where heroes can survive maybe one or two rounds, a solid third to half of the hero retinue is just unplayable because they're not going to have enough time to get going. And this is, just to give the devil its due, this is one of the cool things and one of the things that I really, really wanted to like about Oblivion. Again, it's this big crossover universe-ending event. So normally in the base game, when your hero is dead, they're dead. In this game, in Oblivion, when your hero is dead, you take a new hero. One person falls, someone else shows up, because it's literally the entire cast of the game fighting against this one big villain. But if you never get to see what that hero can do, if you're only going to play out a couple of rounds with that hero, then what's the point? You don't, get to, you don't get to feel cool while being a superhero. And one of the great things about Sentinels of the Multiverse is you get to feel cool because you're playing a superhero. But in Oblivion, you don't. You're just figuring, well, I've got you know two turns out of this guy. What can I do in two turns? Okay, on to the next one. And then it takes everything that we talked about earlier about basic sentinels, all of that heavy text, and amplifies it. In the first game, we counted it up, and there were 17 instances of, at the beginning of, your, of, of this turn, do this, and at the end of this particular phase, do this. 17 things we had to track all at once. And this was in round two. In round, round, in round two, there were 17 different things to track, and I, you're actually underselling it because some of it is at the beginning of some phase, some of it is at the end of some phase, some of it is the first time every phase it's done damage, or sometimes it's every time it's done damage, and then you start to lose track. Wait, was this was this guy every time he's damaged, or the first time every round he's done damage? I can't remember. Better go check the, the text again. Oh, wait, there's a giant wall of text, and it's buried in the middle. It's it, it it's really mind-boggling. You everybody takes their turns, and the turns are still reasonably fun and 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 relatively free of this upkeep. Again, you just have to worry about the, the the reaction of some of the various villains. But then you hit this solid brick wall, because normally in a normal game of Sentinels of the Multiverse, you you do the environment turn and then you do the villain turn, and sometimes that can be tedious. Here. You do one environment turn, a villain turn, another environment turn, another villain turn, and then the oblivion turn. Five solid rounds of no decisions, no player agency, and just wrestling with walls of text. It's completely unforgivable. It's no fun. It causes the game to grind to a halt. And honestly, it is the case that you spend, as a player, as an individual player, you spend less than about a tenth of the game actually playing your turn. Seriously. We're talking about a four-hour game where 90% of the time you are not playing. You are not making decisions. You're not doing your own stuff. You're just wrestling with the system or watching other people take their turns. And that, for me, is unconscionable. 
And the only other part, the only other point that I have listed here is the fact that there are certain mechanisms in the game and in order to bypass them, you have to have extensive knowledge of what all the different heroes do. Like you, it needs to take this certain kind of damage, like either uh, unblockable damage or non-reducible damage. And if you don't know which heroes can do that, then you're just going to be, you know, banging up against this wall and not being able to progress in this game. I don't think that's a huge problem. I mean, it's not a huge problem. To, but... to their credit, in the rule book, although, you know, honestly, publishers have lost all credibility because 90% of the time their recommendations are, are false. For example, Asgard's Chosen says you should play an introductory game first. Don't. But they do say, and this I think is one of the greatest understatements in game publishing, Oblivion should not be your first game of Sentinels of the Multiverse. Yeah, no kidding. First of all, if it would, be, if it is your first game, it will probably be your last. But... <laughs> You you do have to know what the characters are, and you do have to kind of know which characters are going to be useless in the context of Oblivion. I, I wish the cycling heroes thing could have worked, but to a certain extent, I suppose it's impossible because the cool things about heroes, you see when they're getting going, and you can't see them get going and at the same time let them cycle through. The other thing that, that was really cool, and again, really serves this theme and, I, and, and is really neat, is the missions deck. That's a new thing that's introduced in, in Sentinels of the Multiverse, whereby at the start of your turn, you get to do something extra. And this, honestly, in terms of the new rules to be grafted onto the game, is the most accessible, the most applicable, no problem. Because as players' turns are still very, very simple. Now, before you play a card, activate a card, draw a card, you can do one of a list of things. And the list is, you know, looks looks long, but it's really not. It's really very simple. And one of the things you can do is take on a mission. And there are these missions that have that that say this gets satisfied when the following things happen, and they're relatively straightforward and easy to track because again, it's a bit of player information that's put right in front of a player, and they are the ones responsible for it. Some of them give you new allies. Some of them give you new abilities. Whenever they're satisfied, they flip over and something awesome happens. Very often, uh, it's an alternate universe version of one of the characters. It's like, oh, look, this character who's playable, some version of them from Reality 473B has shown up and now they'll fight with us. And that's awesome and I love it and I adore it and the cards are so wonderful. The missions are flavorful. The rewards are flavorful. As I say, it, it, it pays off all these little, uh, all these little references that the game has been building up to. But the problem is that, again, the damage output of the bosses is so high that most of the time the character who unlocks them is going to die soon. And then all you're going to be doing in future turns with your, your future in, in, uh, iteration of another hero is to bring some of those rewards back into play. So all this neat stuff about hero cycling, all this neat stuff about getting new cool little bennies from the missions deck is undercut by the fact that you'll be dying so frequently that you never see the heroes get going, and you'll be spending most of your time just bringing back the stuff that you had in your previous life. So I wanted to like it, but it, it just the system is so bloated, and the stakes have been communicated just by these insane avalanche of crap that the, that the game is disgorging just doesn't let anything really sink in. Now, to be fair, I don't know how to make Sentinels epic. And that's what they wanted to do, and to a certain extent they succeeded. The stakes are higher, everything is so big, the boss has 300 hit points after you get past the version that has 10,000 hit points and is immune to all damage. So yeah, good job. They communicated that it's epic, but it just it, it's not epic in a way that I want to interact with. It's true. That being said, that's just one module of this expansion. The rest of it that comes with it I have no problem with, like we said, the extra heroes, the extra environments, all good. Just that I don't think I'll play this part of the game again. 
Yeah, I don't think I want to do Oblivion again. If I might try it once or twice more in the digital version, because the digital implementation does run all those pesky little at the end of turn, whatever, and tracking all those cards. And to a certain extent, you can just let that be background noise and just try to figure out how to how to do your hero turns and let the computer run everything for you. That having been said, in order to get the full value, you need all the expansions. At that point, you're, you know, sunk a lot of money into duplicating what I already have in physical cards. True. That means that, yeah, like when you die, you can just click on a hero. It'll do all the shuffling for you. It'll bring that hero in, put it out. So all that time will be saved and all that headache. So Yeah, and, it, and I'll be spending more time actually doing things rather than trying to figure out how this one of five active scions is going to be interacting with the two heroes and the five environment cards that happen to be in that half of the game. Oh, it's just every time I just dread it. And normally, very often when playing a normal game of Sentinels, I dread when it's the villain's turn, but that's because I know the villain's going to do something awful to me and I'd rather it didn't. Here I dread it just because, oh, here's here's the part of the, here's the substantial part of the game where fun goes to die. True, but in a normal game of Sentinels, I know we're drawing on about this this one part, but in normal Sentinels, you sort of know what's coming up. It's on the on the villain card. You know how the damage is going to come, and you can sort of maneuver in order to minimize it. But in Oblivion, it's pretty well a flip of a card. It's like, hey, if you're at this location, you take 20 damage. And you had no idea this was coming. It's just so random. Not a fan. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like they made it epic in all the wrong ways and then also made it simultaneously epic in all the trivial ways. Because, yeah, one way you can make a game like Sentinel's Epic is to just increase the damage output by 10 of everything. And sometimes they do that. So, yeah, your character can't survive the onslaught and just crumbles very, very quickly. Is that epic? Kind of. Not really. One thing I'd like to point out, and this is, so you talked about the inability to game, you know, to, to, to try to game things out. This is actually an exploit that has existed since the, uh, basically the second set, Rook City, which was the second expansion, was sloppy in a lot of ways. And this, again, is a bit of a personal anecdote. There's a friend of mine back in Cambridge who, anytime a game defeats him, it's a co-op game that defeats him, he, he sometimes he gets obsessed about repeating those exact circumstances and trying to, trying to get it so we can finally win. There was one boss that was giving us a lot of trouble, namely Plague Rat. He does a lot of irreducible damage. But it's almost all of the same type. And we discovered, mostly by accident, that one of the characters, his name is Tempest, when he gets knocked out, when he gets killed, one of the things he can do after he's quote-unquote dead is make everyone immune to a certain type of damage. And we think, oh, well, you know, that how is that helpful? And then we thought about it. It's like, wait, immunity trumps irreducible, which is a strange interaction of the game. So it's one of those ways in which the game is a bit clumsy. So basically, 90% of the boss's damage output was of this one type. And this one character was far more useful dead than he ever was alive. And so he just made us immune to that damage type. And at that point, the boss becomes a cakewalk. Very unsatisfying, very clumsy. It's one of those ways in which, you know, the sort of design sloppiness that is kind of at the core of Sentinels shines through. And so for the, most, for the most part now, we just try to avoid circumstances that are like that. But when you're fighting Oblivion, and he's doing things like 20 points of irreducible damage of a certain type, it really is asking all the people at the table who are probably veterans at Sentinels to be like, okay, time to bring out Tempest, time to have him bite it and die in the first turn, and just have him make everyone immune to that type of irreducible damage type. And sure enough, that's what we did, because if you don't, you're just playing dumb. And I don't like it when games either let you play dumb or play the fun way. Not that, you know, 20 points of irreducible damage is particularly fun, but that kind of tension I don't find satisfying. So just, 
to a certain extent, there are these design exploits that have persisted in the first and second sets that just rear their ugly heads in a, in a more profound way in Oblivion. You were the one who, were do, who was doing it, by the way. You were the one who, who was running the dead, uh, uh, the, the dead Tempest so as to make us immune. Did, did you think that it was a particularly fun or satisfying thing to do? Not at all. Yeah. And it was a, a no-brainer, right? It's like, okay, well, we're taking Tempest again, and he's going to sacrifice himself as per usual. Oh, well, you don't even have to bother sacrificing himself. He'll die soon enough. Yeah, true enough. <laughs> <laughs> there was no real sacrifice. It won't take long. And that is the Oblivion expansion for Sentinels of the Multiverse. Now on to the topic of the week, which is explaining rules. And Mark, why don't you explain that to us? Why am I on the hook? So let me let me start with a question. I realize this is an abstraction and this is kind of boiling it down to a bit of a false dichotomy. But given the choice between a rules explanation done by several people operating together or by one person operating more or less alone with perhaps interjections at the end, which do you think is better for rules explanation? One person. Why is that? Because it just makes it that more clear. And more than likely or not, several people or two people, one of them is bound to get a rule wrong or <laughs> counterdict the other person and just make it confusing for the group. Okay, well, let's clear that up. Let, let us stipulate then for the sake of the comparison that the, that the rules committee versus the rules dictator – that in the rules committee, everyone has the rules all right. Do you, do you still prefer the dictator to the committee? No, it just it's, it seems more singular and you can concentrate on the one person and their cadence will be the same and the way they present the information will all be the same and it'll just make it that much easier to learn. I agree 100% for what it's worth. It has been my general experience that any game taught by two or more people uh, any rules explanation by two or more people is going to be worse than any rules explanation by one person. I have yet to see the committee explanation that it, even the best committee explanation has th- that I've seen is worse than the worst dictator rules explanation that I've ever seen. And I've seen some pretty bad rules explanation, but and and I've I've been I've been thinking about this over the years about why I've found that to be the case, and I really do think it is the case. That a rules explanation, much like anything else, I used to be a professional educator, I haven't been for some time, is that ideas need to be structured consciously, and they need to be done this way so that things are easier to remember. If you're able to organize ideas in a conscious manner so that they form a structure, then they'll be able to hang together far, far more than just an unrelated series of facts. And sometimes that relates to temporal order, sometimes that relates to conceptual order, sometimes it even relates to a hierarchy of ideas. I have my own preferences about how how hierarchy of ideas ought to work, but even a model of idea structuring that is totally alien from my own is preferable to an absence of structure or two competing structures that are warring against each other. And so that, uh, speaking personally as somebody who has rules explained to me and also as somebody who explains rules, that is my first point of advice. Have one person do it. Interjections ought to be extremely judicious. They ought to be related to the specific idea being communicated at the time. Or they should be corrections of flatly stated falsehoods, right? If somebody says, and and, and sometimes, you know, you should even be conscientious with that. If somebody says, you know, your starting hand size is four cards and it's actually six, you can let that slide until you're setting up the game, right? But if somebody says that, you know, defender wins ties and it's really the attacker wins ties and you're certain that you're right, Maybe you want to throw that in there. Or maybe you could even be conscientious, and while the person's explaining the rest of the rules about that specific idea, if you have time, just check in the rulebook to make sure that you're right, rather than create a disagreement because one of you because one of you is actually wrong. No, that's usually what I always do. I usually just, you know, you know 
nonchalantly grab the rule book, double check it, and then just you know slide it over in front of him and just sort of like point at the thing, and then he, and then he just sort of corrects himself, thereby still maintaining that single voice, right? They correct themselves. My number one point in explaining rules is the fact that you are the one that's introducing this game. You're the one that's setting the mood and the tone for this game. So you have to always be like upbeat and positive and, and, you know, make sure you're, you know, presenting the game properly to these people. I'm so bad at that. Even, even when explaining the game, even when explaining a game that I really love, I'm so bad at conveying enthusiasm. It's probably one of the reasons why, even when I'm reviewing a game I love, everyone thinks I'm, I'm giving negative reviews. It's just communicating enthusiasm is not what I'm good at. If I'm good at anything, it's certainly not that. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm, I'm definitely not good at that. But you're right. You are responsible not just for communicating the, the rules of the game, but you're also responsible for setting the tone. And that is definitely something I need to work on. And we've already covered knowing the rules. Yeah, you definitely need to know. <laughs> because we, we both agreed you should never teach the rules from the manual. This being said, let's okay. throw in a quick note. What? In, in my group, before you showed up, we never even thought that it was a thing. Like, it's like, we have this new game. We would take the the cellophane off it and, like, page one, and we would, like, learn the game and play it. And, the, and none of us thought any different. Even myself now shudder at that thought. Yeah. So, I mean, it's worth noting that there are very, very rare exceptions. That is how, that is literally how you start the game of Fast Forward Fortress, for example. You know, you, you break the shrink and you start reading rule cards, but we're talking extremely minimalist rules here. And that's part of the experience. All other exceptions, even if it's an incredibly light game, something like King Domino or Athul or something e- equally light. No, just don't. I mean, it, it's, it's just, it's just painful because quite frankly, Rule rules manuals, even really good rules manuals, are not necessarily structured in the right way to teach someone how to play the game in a verbal way. A verbal presentation of a player might necessarily take on a different task or a different structure of rules explanation than a rules manual will. And I think that's for the best. It's just different ways of communicating information. That's just, I'll just go on to a point near the bottom because you brought up short games, games like Neoshima Hex or games like uh, King Domino. In Neoshima Hex, all of the information is present, i.e. when you draw your tokens, they're face up. So I usually don't even explain the rules of Neoshima Hex. It's like, okay, this is the, the grid. You're going to draw this many tiles. And then as they turn them up, I explain what they can do. They put them on the board and then we just go from there. And, I, and because that type of game where it's so short, you can, sh- it's better. To, I find it better to show them exactly how the structure works. And then you just reset and go again because it's that short that it doesn't take that long just to go through the game. So they get the feel of how it's played. I envy people who are able to do that. As a rules explainer, I'm never able to... To me, it feels like a leap of faith. It feels like a degree of confidence that you're going to be able to manage the experience over time. I'm, I'm really not able to do that. I feel a sort of... Sometimes I think it, it works out for the best. Sometimes I think it leads to better rules explanation. But I err towards the comprehensive in terms of giving rules explanations. Now, some people are obviously not comprehensive enough. When they you know say something like, and... Then there's an auction for the cards, and I'll talk about the auction once we do the first auction. Like, no, 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 no. I need to know how much money I need for the auction. I need to know how many cards I might get for for planning all these other things. Please tell me how the game works. Or, you know, and then we fight, and I'll talk about fighting when we have the first fight. No, 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 no. I'm not going to start a fight unless I know how it's going to end. Things like that. 
but I agree with you. For lots of games, that's definitely the way to do it. It's like, we're going to play a couple of hands open or even an entire game open all, you know, and we'll, we'll all find it together. I, I, for whatever reason, I just, I'm not able to do that, but I wish I could. All right. The next thing I'm going to start with is the very first thing you should start with rules is start with the objectives or how to score points. Uh, I always, that's always what I do, but I actually think the first thing you should do is, uh, start with a brief capsule description of the theme. Well, that's, that's what I meant. The, well, was, that was part of setting the mood, right? Setting the mood and, sure. and keeping it upbeat and, you know, setting the, the stage for the game. Sure. That, that, that's reasonable. Yeah. The, the, so the way, the way I do it, and this is sort of the, in bullet points here is I try to give a couple sentences about the theme, but I often forget because as I say, I'm very bad at the sort of all the extraneous stuff. I then, then say how we win. And then a very blunt overview of ways to do that. So often with Euro games, it's, you know, here we are in medieval Scotland, we're trading goods. The goal of the game is to score points. You score points by selling things. You know, something like that. L- literally just a sort of uh, uh, brief... So, for example, when we were talking about uh, Voyages of Marco Polo or Sentinels of the Multiverse, just for the last two games we've, we've gone in depth on, Voyages of Marco Polo, I can say, you win by fulfilling contracts or, or setting up trading posts on the map, right? And you don't need to go into detail about what that is yet, but just give them a little flag post right at the top. So when those things come up, they know to remember that those are important victory things. Or with Sentinels, it's, it can be simple. We all win when the boss dies. Yeah, perfect. And you need to do these things, I think, and it's very, very important before you go into however however else you explain rules, because there's lots of different ways to do it, but you need to flag those things at the beginning. When In, in debating, we had this, uh, this mantra, you need to tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you've said. And that's very much what I think when it comes to board games, but with the emphasis on what it is you need to do to win. Not that winning is the, the important thing, but it's the structure around which this weird little social activity is structured around. So you'd best emphasize it appropriately. All right, the next thing I have is when a game designer makes a game, we're hoping that he gives the game a flow, and you have to give your rules explanation the same flow. So you want to make sure you start at the top, and work you through the way through the different phases of the game, and and introduce them in the way that the designer has brought them. Because sometimes he's put them there for a reason. They sometimes they put it there for a reason. Sometimes they put it there for a reason. He or she. Yeah, and I I try to follow that structure. So some people do it in different ways. Some people try to or, uh, organize the game in terms of large concepts. Uh, I tend to organize my rules explanation in terms of the turn and round structure because I like to focus it in terms of uh, you know, an agent, insofar as this is a narrative, you know, explaining a game is like a narrative. I try to make it agent focused. It's like you as the player on your turn, you do the following things, right? Here's the round structure into which that fits. Here's an upkeep phase. Here's a whatever. But then when it's your turn, here's what you do. And if one of the things you can do during your turn is say, start an auction, I'm saying, okay, and now we talk about what auctions look like always under the aegis of what someone does on their turn rather than the other way around. There are exceptions. I, we talked about root. And when I'm explaining root, I, I break that rule because I talk about fights and ruling clearings and how cards work because the way that those things fit into everybody's turns is different. But in other games where people have the same round structure, the same turn structure as everybody else, I subordinate all the concepts to the, to the turn structure so that when it's someone's turn, they know what they can do. Because that, that, that to me is of primary importance. Like how an auction works, the details of that, to me, in many ways, are subordinate to what a player does with respect to those auctions. Because the emphasis should be on player agency. Does that make sense to you? Totally. That's all I've got for the actual rules explanations. Well, I then I then try to toss in at the end for um, 
as I say, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you've said. So at the end, I'd like to have another reminder of what it is you do to win. So again, in the context of uh, Voyages Marco Polo, you know, yes, you told them at the start, you fulfilled contracts and you put, set up trading posts. And yes, during the discussion of the round structure, you tell them how to set up trading posts and how to fulfill contracts. But then at the end, I remind everyone, oh, by the way, most of your points are going to come from these two things. So again, people have, have a sense of things. So there's a difference of opinion I've observed in rules explanation about whether or not during a rules explanation you, could, you should give strategy tips or advice. What's your approach to this? I think if there is a, a known unbalanced part of the game that sometimes you say, I've seen someone use this particular strategy very well, or you can see how this interacts. You can see that if you don't you know, pay attention to this guy doing this, then that might get out of control or, you know, watch when this happens, you know, you want to be careful not to go so far because if you go, you know, get too much power here, then this is going to happen. Other than that, I don't, I don't want to try to manipulate their game because they always surprise me and come up with new strategies or new ways to play things or new ways to interact different mechanisms. And that's what I really enjoy about games. So I try not to push them in any particular direction. Unsurprisingly, I, I agree 100%. I think that if it's the case that there's a particular card or a particular tile or what have you that has an outsized influence on the game state, I might flag it. I don't do this for every game, and I'm certainly not going to do this with every tile that or card that's useful. It's just ones like, okay, you know, a lot of the game is going to revolve around around this or what have you. And it is certainly the case that if I see someone making a first-turn move that I think is a grave mistake, I might, as the rules explainer, say, are you sure you want to do that? This is the con- These are the con- Are you aware of the consequences? And then if they look unsure about the consequences, I remind them. But past that, no, I, I don't tell people how to play in the sense of strategy tips. For exactly the reason you said. I mean, for one thing, I could be wrong. It's worked for me, but I see lots of people pull out strategies that I never, uh, I I never could have imagined. That's why I play games. If if there was nothing ever, if there was never anything new, why bother? And furthermore, I don't. As I said, I want it to be agent focused. I want to give them the most agency possible in the concept of the game because most of the time when we play games, it's either it's generally for choices and or flavor. And my telling them about all these things at the outset is not going to amplify that. I always get so frustrated. One of the things that frustrates me the most, even more than someone explaining the games incorrectly or or introducing a rule wrong is they then go into very detailed sidebars about every little thing. It's like, oh, well, this card, you pair this with this other thing, and then you do this thing, and that's great, and you'll get lots of points out of that. It's like, oh, this other card's great. I played this game last week where I did that, and I got 80 points out of that comment. It's like, good for you, buddy. I was just about to say that when people bring up, you know, I did this last game, or, you know, Joe did this in the last game. He did this, this, and this, and and to skew the person's, you know, way of thinking towards that is something I do not do. I might try to emphasize, again, I try to leave it as open as possible. I might emphasize possibilities. Like when we were talking about uh, Food Chain Magnate, that great game I had where I was trounced by, by the woman who, who, who wandered up to the microphone and said, there shall be beer. And again, people around the table are like, how, does that, how is that card useful? And I might say, look, I tend not to get it, but here's in theory why it works. Rather than someone saying, oh, it's not useful, I don't, I don't ever use it, I, I got a billion points out of this three weeks ago, uh, this is a great combo. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you think that it's problematic or could lead people into mistakes and not have fun, fine, but otherwise don't tell them how to live their lives. That's not what the point of games are. Even though, as I say, I kind of err towards comprehensive in terms of explaining how all the subsystems work, I'd rather not tell people how best to manipulate the subsystems. 
Yep. The only other note I have here is why are rules explanations so important? I just think it's very important that the players feel confident in what they're doing, right? Because it's all part of having the fun. If you're always unsure about what's going on or or not knowing what's happening, then you are not having a fun experience. And even the players that do know what's going on, they're not having fun watching this person, you know, flounder around and not understand what's going on. So you have to make sure you welcome questions. You need to see if someone's not understanding exactly what's going on. Just sort of, you know, don't lead them in a certain strategy, but just, you know, explain, you know, what they're doing or, you know, how they could, you know, this is why they should do a certain thing. A couple of things I'd like to flag. One thing that I always not always, that I disproportionately forget to do is talk about endgame scoring. You know, there's off, and specifically what I mean is those, those extra little bonuses, like, you know, you get a point for every $10 left over or what have you, those little things. Uh, sometimes it's huge, but generally if there's a massive amount of endgame scoring, I remember to do that. But it's especially in those Euro games where it's just leftover stuff where it gets points. But, you know, it often makes a difference, and it will often impact people's late-stage choices, and I'm very, very, very bad at remembering to do that. I would like to mention one uh, little incident that happened uh, last week where we played a very, very simple game called Startups. And the uh, basically the thrust of it is that it's a simple card game, and sometimes playing a card is risky. Because if you play a card and you're in the minority, you're going to have to give points to the person with the majority of played cards at the end of the game. So you don't want to go in, go in on a suit unless you think you're going to get the majority. Two turns, I don't mean two rounds, but two turns from the end of the game, the game explainer said, oh, by the way, at the end of the game, you play all the cards in your hand. The entire table nearly took his head off because <laughs> we were sitting here looking at three cards that now we knew we were playing whether we wanted to or not. And... Even though I reacted with, you know, great righteous indignation uh, towards this individual, really in the back of my head I was thinking, you're a hypocrite. You forget stuff like this all the time. It is so easy to forget stuff like that because, again, as I say, it is important to consciously structure rules according to uh, a sort of architectonic of ideas. And the ideas that I have tend to focus on things like round and turn structure. But the end of the game, much like setup, exists outside that structure. It's, it's alien to the, to, to the internal logic of how the game works. And so naturally it tends to fall out. That just, that just goes to show the influence that the sort of conceptual schema that you use to organize ideas can have an influence on, on how you think and how you present information. That's not to say that I think my scheme is a bad one. It's just that it has its shortcomings. So I often forget endgame scoring. Is there anything that you sometimes forget or notice that other people forget? No, nothing off the top of my head. It's just sometimes it's hard when cards, when it's a, like when stuff comes up off of a card, like a game like, you know, Sentinels, where it's a, a card that changes the rules suddenly and then, and you sometimes forget it's in there or, you know, it totally changes, you know, the game state or this person thought they could do a certain strategy and now this card's come up and, and euchre that whole thing. It's unfortunate, but sometimes it happens. On a related note, I sometimes forget, although I'm getting better at this now, I sometimes forget when a game introduces technical vocabulary for common actions or items. There were a couple times, actually, where I explained El Grande from beginning to end using more generic terms, like good supply and bad supply, cube. And then I remembered, oh, wait, all the action cards refer to provinces, the stock, and caballeros, not cubes. It's like, okay, sorry, guys. 
here's what the words mean. <laughs> and sometimes, and then, and then you know, it's not an episode unless we bring up Tigers and Euphrates, right? And they've up to three, three different editions, and they have internal or external or revolts, or and, revolts wars and wars, and, or you know, so many yeah. different terminologies. Or and it, that's the same for any game when there's like multiple uh, versions or different, you know, editions. You're used to a certain way. Same thing with uh, Hansa Teutonica. You have your good supply and your bad supply. But there, at least, there's no text anywhere. Anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. In the context of Tigers and Euphrates, sometimes you have to be careful because there's a summary behind some of the screens. And there, you'd ideally want the terms to match up. But that's one of the great things about Hansa Teutonica. There's no text anywhere, so you can use whatever words you want. How about that? That's another thing that I want to bring up because we have another person that explains rules in our group that will won't allow you to have the player aids until he's done explaining. Really? Yes. So what do you think about that? I always think it's a great idea to have the player aids out so they can sort of follow along. And so later on, it's much like when you take a test. If you write out, you know, all your answers or all your words, when you see it here, you can associate it more. So as the game goes on, you can say, oh, yes, that's what he was talking about here. And there's keywords in there that will help hit those points home. Hmm. I would say it would really, really depend on the game. So any game where there's a list of possible actions you could do, like, for example, Hansa Teutonica or Tigris and Euphrates, I would be inclined to follow the same order that they have. Again, just so that everything can hang together under the same conceptual framework. And that's exactly how I explain Hansa Teutonica. It's like, on your turn, you get a certain number of actions. Here's all the actions. Follow along with me along the bottom of your, they call it an escritoire, but it's just a silly placard. Um, and so, you know, it's like, this is the order to do it, and it, and it helps things hang together. In the cases where there's lots and lots and lots of text on the player aid, I would say, number one, it's probably not a very good player aid. And number two, it might be distracting, because instead of paying attention to you, they might be reading. I was going to say, in his defense, that was his reasoning, was the fact that in, in our group, usually, we ended up just, you know, sitting and reading the player aid while he's trying to explain the rules. But so you don't know how to read. It's, shh. How else can we explain your inability to follow simple card instructions? I just, I've been charitable. Look, I just read until I until I get what I want. Like you get to do this, this, and this, and then I stop. Right. I, I don't like the unless or and then do that last sure. part that hurts me. I, if you just stop at the, where you want to stop, I think the cards work way better that way. Fair enough. Fair enough. That seems reasonable. All right. And then the other point I want to make is the like what we do with uh, if you know a game well enough. You can make it even more enjoyable like we do with Great Western Trail where you <laughs> – well, I'm not being – I'm saying where you like – where you take – like uh, like uh, they do with Space Alert or Dungeon Lords where they've written the rule book in such a way that makes it fun. You can introduce the rules in a fun way and I think it really brings the game alive for people. I think that, you know, really it serves to highlight our different approaches to things and our different strengths. Really, at the upshot, what we're what we're both standing on is your your reminder that a rules explanation in very is in very way in very many ways a setting of a mood and setting of a tone for a social experience. Whereas my primary focus of explaining a board game rules is that you have to introduce certain concepts and certain procedures, and you have to be conscious of the order and the manner you do that. But I definitely think that I should take a page out of your book and be very conscious that I, I'm I'm setting a social stage, not just introducing a procedure. And I think that that would be a great way for for my rules explanations to get better in the True. future. And I will take a page out of your book and learn how to read. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to close it out for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E. 
And be sure to let them know that Aeon's End and Terraforming Mars are the greatest games ever. Make sure you make it. It's audio, right? Because I won't be able to read it. So it's make sure you make an audio file. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we find the feedback and the discussion very gratifying. A lot of the activity on the uh, guild, for example, has a lot of good discussion, none of it involving us, and that's how you know that it's good discussion. And we'll get back to you when you reach out to us if we possibly can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.